0: Welcome to Harfer Chabad podcast, a project of the Klein Jewish Academy. In this podcast, we take ancient Jewish wisdom and make it relevant. Each podcast includes insights, culled from Jewish traditions and ideas, and helps give practical ideas on how to incorporate them into your daily life.
1: Okay, so we're in the midst of a holiday of Sukkot. Um, I hope you had a good celebration those who could and at home, um, and hopefully the end of the holiday we'll, we'll uh, be able to get together in, these, in this sukkah. So we're gonna talk about the, this bequeathing the heritage, and this, this term bequeathing the heritage came from, uh, as you can see on the slide, the uh, the prayer book for Rosh Hashanah. And this was actually the chief rabbi of Israel, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Meyer Lau. Um, he took that as his personal motto. So my creator, grant me the understanding to bequeath the heritage. You know, this sums up so much of what we try to accomplish as Jews. You know, we're part of this chain that stretches back thousands of years. Uh, We've uh, survived impossible odds. And uh, a lot of us feel that it's our duty to keep the chain going. Of course, the question is how, you know, how do we really ensure? Yeah, you could just stop there. Yeah, Jerry, on those slides, um, because we'll talk about a couple of examples. Um, How can we ensure this chain remains unbroken and we stay connected to is Judaism? And uh, they have a couple of examples here. So these are a couple of portraits of contemporary Jews. So number one is this Pierre. He's a traditional Jew living in France. Uh, Jewish identity is important to him, and he definitely believes in the God of the Torah. However, he's not entirely sure what to do with those feelings. Um, and it's the Sunday before his son's bar mitzvah, Pierre wonders how he can make Judaism more meaningful and enduring, both for him and for his son. And then there's the other example of this uh, woman, Diana, who came from a religious home, but she uh, gave up that tradition years ago. One day she reads an article about something Jewish and suddenly breaks down in tears she realizes how much she misses her old way of life but she feels sort of stuck after 30 years she's not sure how she can just pick up where she left off you know she wonders how can i make that heritage mine again after being out of it for so long and so that's the the question for discussion you know how what advice would you give to either or both of these people about keeping the heritage going. Yeah, if anybody has some ideas. Yeah, in their own way, each of these two people are looking for a way to keep that heritage going for themselves now and also for the future. You know, especially in Pierre's case because he wants to pass that on to his son okay so uh, anyway we'll be discussing that I mean that's what where we're going we're trying to figure out how to bequeath that heritage keep it going. Um, And the approach that we're going to take in this lesson is that the way to bequeath the heritage is to uh, study the Torah and perform mitzvah, perform commandments. Because the reason is that ultimately it's the Torah and the commandments that give us our identity. And as it says in text number one, uh, Salia Gion Gion did that. It is only the Torah that makes us a nation.
2: Uh, Well, and children learn by example. So if you're concerned about passing things on to your children, then if you do things like put up a sukkah, then your children have that imprinted on them. Like, oh, I remember my parents used to put up a sucker. Gee, that sounds like a good idea. I'm gonna do that. Or on the other hand, you could be like us and be rebellious and our parents did not put up a sucker. (laughs) (laughs) Yet somehow things got passed on to us. I'm not sure how my parents did it because they didn't really do anything in the house. Yet, we always knew we were Jewish, and we, we knew certain things, even though my parents did nothing.
3: Okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, our children remember the sukkah and uh, want to continue with that. That's right. All
2: right, but as I said, we rebelled. mm mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Well, I found that in my studies that it seems like it's every other generation and right, right. Uh, modern Jews, I guess you could call it. Yeah,
2: I, I see that. I see that with, you know, friends that I have and the same thing. Yeah.
1: So we want to talk about, in other words, you know, what is it that Jews do, no matter what they look like, what language they speak, what their standards of living are, the one thing that point that stands out is studying the Torah. And Robin, you could do this one. This is a, a long one. It's two slides. So. two? Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: Okay. I am impelled to add yet another essential point. The survival of our Jewish people and the impact that this matter has upon every Jewish individual is not something that has yet to be investigated and experimented with. The Jewish people is one of the oldest in the world and its long history as a nation it has gone through various conditions and circumstances mostly very unfavorable as mentioned above if one wishes to know the secret of Jewish survival under circumstances that have obliterated larger and stronger nations one has to apply the same scientific method as in other cases in other words It is necessary to find the common factor or factors in all the various periods of Jewish history, which would then have to be taken as the basis of Jewish survival. Should two or three different factors be found, there would be a question of whether all of them were indispensable to survival, or perhaps only one or two would have also been sufficient. But if only one common factor is found, then there can be no doubt that this is the only basis of the survival. This, as mentioned above, is the scientific approach and is not a matter of belief or faith. Moreover, as in all fields of science, it does not matter whether one does or does not understand the scientific findings. Indeed, in most exact sciences, the facts and actual phenomena are first ascertained and then a scientific explanation is sought. Now going back to the long history of our people over a period of some 3,500 years, it will be seen that there has been only one factor that has preserved Jewish identity and survival throughout the various periods of our history. This factor was not language, nor country, nor anything else which is often associated with nationhood and nationalism. For in all these things, there have been radical changes from one period to another, as anybody familiar with Jewish history knows. The single factor and I emphasize the one and only factor which has preserved our Jewish people throughout the ages, under all kinds of circumstances, has been the fulfillment of the mitzvah in day to day life, such as the observance of Shabbat, the putting on a tefillin, the Torah education of our children. These and all other mitzvot are already embedded in the Torah and have been observed by Jews since the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, and they have been observed under the same way throughout the ages without change. A further proof that this is the secret of Jewish survival, if further proof is necessary, is the fact that there have always been deviationists, The Torah relates that immediately after the Torah was given at Sinai, there were the worshipers of the golden calf. Similarly, throughout the period of the judges, prophets and kings, as well as the post-biblical period of the second Beit HaMidash temple. And later, these deviationists attempted to steer another course away from the traditional Judaism, but they could never take root within the Jewish people. Either these deviationists eventually realized their mistake and returned to the fold of observance of Torah and mitzvot, or they were completely assimilated among the nations of the world without having anything further to do with the Jewish people, least of all with Jewish survival. Yeah, the fact is that
1: it's not, you know, a smooth road we're always gonna experience ups and downs in our Jewish observance. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, people just simply won't feel it. Uh, You know, and prayer, uh, sometimes it just goes with emotions and do the prayers because that's what they have to do, but they they don't get into it. They don't get into the groove, the uh, into the flow. Uh,
3: many people just
1: feel that this Torah way of life is just not them. It's not who they are. Yeah. So what can we do to stay involved in the heritage, as it says on the slide? Um, We're going to use the holiday of Sukkot and the three commandments or mitzvot uh, surrounding the holiday as a model for keeping our connection to Judaism alive through well thick and thin, I guess. (laughs) The first mitzvah of Sukkot is to be happy. And lots of uh, literature has been written. How can God command you to be happy? It's not really something that you can do on command. But the truth is that it is always a mitzvah to be happy. Because the Torah says that you're supposed to serve God with joy. On Sukkot, there's a mitzvah to increase in joy, And that is found in the next text. And Andrea, would you like to do this text,
0: please? Yes. And you shall rejoice in your festival, you and your son and your daughter and your manservant and your maidservant and the levita And the stranger, and the orphan, and the widow who are with with you in the city. Seven days you shall celebrate the festival to the Lord your God in the place with the Lord shall choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your your products and in all the work of your hands, and you will only be happy.
1: Yeah, and that's not just a generic kind of happiness, you know doing somersaults in the street. <laughs> uh, there are specific actions that are needed for expressing these, this joy. And Maimonides talks about in the
4: next text. Um, and Jerry, please. These days, a person is obligated to be happy and in good spirits. He, his children, his wife, the members of his household, and all those who depend on him as the verse states, and you shall rejoice in your festival. The rejoicing mentioned in the verse refers to sacrificing peace offerings. Nevertheless, included in this charge to rejoice is that he, his children, and the members of his household should rejoice. Each one in a manner appropriate for him. What is implied? Children should be given roasted seeds, nuts, and sweets. For women, one should buy attractive clothes and jewelry according to one's financial capacity. Men should eat meat and drink wine. I'd rather have the meat and wine than the jewelry anyway.
1: Well, that's oh, speak that's for yourself, Jeremy. <laughs> that's the whole idea there. <laughs> I mean, we're uh, enjoying to have eat meat and drink wine every Sabbath as well. You know, this is a, this is a way we celebrate, the way that we engender joy. So that's one of the mitzvot. The second one is to uh, take the four species. And that's in text five, I'll do that one. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the Hadar tree, uh, date palm fronds, a branch of a braided tree, and, the will- and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for a seven-day period. So every morning of Sukkot, except for the Sabbath, we take the the lulav and the etrog, at least two of uh, the aravot branches and three of the adasim branches, and shake them together in all six directions. North, south, east, west, up, and down. In the synagogue, uh, if it's uh, a weekday and not not the Sabbath, rather, uh, we would uh, bring uh, the lulav and the etrog to the synagogue and uh, uh, and shake the the. The species together during the prayer of halal, um, giving uh, yeah, a different feel to the to the service. So that's the second mitzvah of sukkot. The third mitzvah is the one that gave the holiday its name, the sukkah. So we build this temporary booth or a outdoor room, and cover it with uh, some natural uh, covering on the roof, uh, with openings so that you can see the stars at night. Um, it could be uh, three, uh, three sided or four sided. Um, and so that and that's where you uh, shake the uh, those four species in in the sukkah. Okay. Um, yeah. So for a seven day period, you shall live in booths. Every resident among the Israelites shall live in booths. 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 Excuse me. Not booths. Um, We're gonna try and demonstrate how each of these mitzvahs or commandments represent an important element of our Jewish identity and the relationship with God. By holding on and uh, keeping these three elements, uh, this is the one way that we can bequeath the heritage. So there's your three elements, the rejoicing, the four kinds. And notice it's the woman that's
2: buying the wine. Buying the yeah. wine. She should be at the jewelry. She store. should be, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm looking at the
4: sukkah booth. Isn't that a little too closed in? I thought they're supposed to have been open to the sky to some extent.
1: Uh, no, no, no. You see those? That's a uh, split bamboo there. There's a lot of space in between those, uh, those, uh, pieces of bamboo.
4: Okay, so it'd be considered kosher enough.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, if you ever gone to to my arsuka, we have uh, yeah, we have a very similar uh, uh or, or roof covering, and yeah, you can definitely see to the sky. Probably about well uh, between a third and 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 the half or uh, of. Of the roof is uncovered to the to the sky, really. From there, it's just, you just can't see it because of the angle. Yeah, if they
2: would have been looking up, you would have been able to see. Right.
1: If you if you took a picture, you lie, lie on the ground of the sukkah and, and looked up, you'd see lots and lots of <laughs> of nice. sky there.
4: Okay, because from that angle, you have to admit it looks pretty closed off.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just the angle of it. Uh, but that's why you, know, you only have those, uh, the solid planks uh, as well as minimal as you can, as you can do it. Uh, so that you're not blocked, definitely blocking off the sky under those planks. And that's why most of the the majority of the planks, the two of them go across the yeah, uh we try the that. width uh, as opposed to the length In the
2: other
1: direction yeah yeah i you years need more <laughs> more planks then that's all oh, okay so theres an interesting thing about this mitzvah of the four kinds that that middle mitzvah um, you can see you bind these the branches on either side of the uh, the the lulav, the palm branch, and then you have in your hand also the the yellow fruit, which is a citron. And that's the etrog in in, in Hebrew. Um, but um, there's some. Interesting nuances about the the uh, the mitzvahs of the of Sukkot. You know, many mitzvahs involve some kind of specific object that has to be used in a specific way. Uh, you light candles on Friday nights. Um, men put the in these boxes on their head and their arm. Uh, Nearly every day, except for uh, holidays and the Sabbath. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, we have a ram's horn that we blow. Yeah, typically the requirement simply to, yeah, take the certain item for the for a certain mitzvah. It doesn't matter who the object belongs to. You know, whether you're wearing your own tefillin, or you come to the synagogue and you use the rabbis to fill in, it, it doesn't matter. You're you're fulfilling the mitzvah just the same. The mitzvah is to be wearing the tefillin. Um, however, there are a few mitzvahs that do not that that actually come with a Well, as they put it here, an ownership requirement. (laughs) Uh, And one of them is the mitzvah of the four species here, the four kinds. You can only fulfill your obligation to shake the lulav and the etrog if that set, the lulav and the etrog and all the branches and all, that belongs to you. So when you come to, uh, you know, uh, in the past, we've had like uh, soup and salad and the sukkah or whatever. And the the rabbi uh, gives you the lulav and the etro to, to shake, to fulfill the mitzvah. He's actually gifting that set to you. Some people might say the the saying that this is um, uh, meaning I'm gifting this to you and it is now your property on the condition that you return it to me afterwards. So it's important for the lender to make this declaration or at least think it when he gifts you that 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 set of uh four kinds um so that it's not just a loan it's an actual gift if ownership is not conveyed onto the borrower uh the mitzvah isn't being performed and Obviously, we we have that condition that you return it to me afterwards. So after you're done, you give it back to the owner. The language makes plain that that's a loan, not a gift. In the case of a loan, the original owner would retain ownership. If you lend somebody um, uh, hedge clippers so that they can to their through their yard um, they don't the people who borrowed it did not do not own it. They're gonna return it or they should be returning it um, But if it's gifted to you, you know you, as long as you have it, you have full ownership, And so in the case of these four kinds, you can use it for your personal mitzvah. So what's the basis for this ownership requirement? If we go back to text five, maybe you can go back, Jerry. (coughs) It says... And you shall take for yourselves, say the,
3: the first line there. There's
1: the words for yourselves is, is sort of superfluous, it seems. But the rabbis and the sages that deduce from that. That the four kinds must belong to the person taking them. Now we can do text <laughs> seven. And who are we up to? I think, they're...
2: oh, okay. Okay. From the words for yourselves, the rabbis derived one does not fulfill his obligation on the first day of the holiday with someone else's lulav. However, if one wishes, they may gift it to another person, and that person may gift it to someone else. It happened once that Rabban Gamil and the elders were traveling on a ship, and they had only one lulav set among them, belonging to Rabban Gamil. Rabban Gamil gifted it to Rabbi Yahushia. Rabbi Yehoshia gifted it to Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, and Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah gifted it to Rabbi Akiva. Thus, they all fulfilled their obligation.
4: Actually, in theory, didn't Rabbi Akiva need to give it back to Rabbi Gamliel?
2: Uh,
3: yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. After, after he was done, he would Essentially, you know, give it back, which means the, you know, returning it. That was the condition that he, he claimed ownership of it. Exactly. And that's what happens, you know, if you, uh, you know, especially if you have different guests uh, every day in your sukkah you know, has to go around so all the guests can perform the mitzvah and then it becomes the original owners again. And if we look at the next text, um, it also, uh, we're talking about the, um, um, it also says for yourself, you shall make for yourself the festival of Sukkot for seven days when you gather in the produce from your threshing floor and your vat. Aside from being a religious holiday, this is also a harvest holiday as well. So they they sort of combine there. Um, But the Sukkah itself there's no law that the sukkah must belong to the person using it. Um, in this case, the rabbis derive from these words for yourself uh, that the sukkah may not be stolen. <laughs> A borrowed sukkah is acceptable. And when you come to, well, let's keep with the example of soup and salad in the sukkah, you're fulfilling that mitzvah of dwelling in the sukkah, uh, even though the rabbi didn't give the sukkah to you. You know, we're all gathered in the sukkah, having your soup and salad, and... uh, you're fulfilling that mitzvah by just being in the sukkah.
3: All right. Um, And let's go on to the next text.
0: Okay, Andrea, if you would. Yes. The rabbi says, although they say that the person does not fulfill his obligation on the first day, of the festival with someone else, Lula, one does fulfill the obligation with another person, Sukkah. So, At the verse of the state, every resident among the Isra- Israelites shall lead uh, in boats. This teach that all the youth people are fit to uh, receive in one Sukkah. And in what what do the the rabbis derive from there for yourself, they derive that one does not fulfill his obligation with stolen, stolen sukkah. However, a borrowed sukkah is permitted as diverse state, every resident.
1: So you can go to any sukkah, they you're invited, <laughs> and you can fulfill the mitzvah.
4: Hold on a second here. I'm not saying it's right, but I can understand stealing a little of an, an astrolog. I can't understand anyone stealing a whole sukkah.
2: <laughs> oh, crazy things happen. People steal cars, don't they?
5: Do you know what a sukkah costs?
2: Give, give a hundred.
5: Like what? A couple
4: hundred bucks, right?
5: A hundred? <laughs> Is it a couple hundred.
2: A couple thousand. A <laughs> couple of
5: thousand, wow. Um, You get, I mean, uh, some sukkahs fell down recently, especially the panel sukkahs and how big. I mean, sukkahs aren't cheap. And uh, I mean, think of a Chabad rabbi who has to provide for his community of sukkah, and uh, some guy has some sukkah available, and Just a few extra shekel if you uh, just have to rent the U-Haul for $19.99 for an hour (laughs) instead of uh, some of the
3: other options.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, the question's why, you know, why if the verse says for yourself in both cases. Mm. It seems to clearly indicate that the Lulu and the sukkah should belong to the one using it. You know, why are the two cases different?
4: All right, but it's also practical that you can e- easily gift a lulu and S drug for person A to person B. In terms of the fact that you'd have to move the sukkah, would you really want to gift it from person A to person B? Or
2: it would be, it's easy for each family member, to have their own lulav and etrog set, but it would be somewhat awkward for each family member to have their own sukkah. Then you wouldn't be rejoicing; you'd all be sitting by yourselves. Plus, making a, a, a what could be a mess of
4: your property.
1: <laughs>
4: yeah. Four people, four sukkahs.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is a. A festival where you're commanded to come during temple times, you were commanded to come to Jerusalem.
2: Yeah, and celebrate. So, what did you bring your sukkah on your back with you? How did you know you were supposed to go there with your sukkah too?
3: No, you're supposed to go there with your lulav and the natural.
2: but not your sukkah. But were you supposed to be there for all seven days of the holiday, or you could just go for one day?
3: Well, the first two days
1: and the last two days are a holiday, right? Yeah, right yeah. Again, it it also comes from an agrarian
3: uh, community, mm-hmm.
1: which you know it was a harvest festival, so you know you you, you celebrate. You're in the fields. You've uh, collected your produce, and now you're celebrating jointly as a, as a group. And and we'll get into that. But that this is that's one of the features here that you know we're we're one community. We're all a part of peace of God, and so we should be all together under our in one sukkah. So, you know, a, a mitzvah is not just a rule, you know, you know just a a commandment. It's, it's, it's also a means of connecting with God. Every mitzvah we do is an opportunity to come closer to God. And we can better understand the functions of mitzvah by exploring the components of human relationships. And they came up with these three components, as you see on the slide. And let's go through each of them a little bit. So this is a basic level. These are three components of a personal relationship number one the expression of love uh, this is you know uh for two people the nurture the love between them they do things to express their feelings for each other they do things together visit places uh go to the museums uh concerts what have you um Right. buy flowers for the other you know, ex- uh, exchange birthday gifts, anniversary cards that type of thing. Now number two commitment you know sometimes even in the best of relationships this expression of love sort of breaks down a little bit you know you might have a have an argument of falling out. Um someone might say a hurtful thing against the other person. And or you're just getting on each other's nerves. Well, uh unfortunately, in today's day and age, sometimes that just means okay, okay, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Let's go our separate ways. Uh, But in a a more mature relationship, instead of throwing in the towel, you'll find a way to come together again, because as we found in step one there, or component one, we really do love each other, and we have a commitment to keeping this relationship alive. Number three, component number three is identity. Okay, This is when the relationship has matured so much that the two parties stop thinking themselves as independent entities who love each other, but more as one unit. And let's illustrate this with an example. They use health bars, but let me let me use something else. Uh, you go into the supermarket and your spouse asks you to buy a specific brand of coffee. Actually, I saw in the ShopRite circular that September 29th is National Coffee Day, right? <laughs> so we'll use coffee. If you do buy that coffee, you've expressed your love, you've, you know, satisfied the desire of your spouse. That's the first component in that relationship, okay? Uh, Say you forgot to buy that coffee. Or maybe you bought the wrong one. Your spouse is disappointed, but accepts your apology Hmm. And you promise to do it right the next time. There's no gift of love here, but there's an expression of commitment, the second component in the relationship there. And the third level happens slowly over time. It's when you stop thinking that my spouse wants this specific kind of coffee, but instead you think of it as, our kind of coffee. You know, um, maybe you're not even a coffee drinker, but you know this is this is our coffee. This is what we buy. This is what we drink. You know, it's not just your spouse's desire, but your own. Let's apply this with our relationship with God. The most basic part of a relationship with God is the performance of the commandments. God told us to do these things,
3: so we do them. And that's how we
1: show our love for him. Okay, but that's not the full extent of our love. You know, sometimes we don't listen. Uh, Sometimes we just don't feel like it or whatever, doing it or pass it up for something else. Um, the relationship doesn't end with God, Uh, between us and God. Rather, we're bothered by our failures. How could I have forgotten to say grace after meals? I just had this wonderful meal, this wonderful uh, holiday dinner for Sukkot, and it just slipped my mind, forgot to do the grace after meals. You know, then we apply to ourselves this Jewish guilt. Oh, I didn't do it. You know, uh, we want to find a way back. I find a way to recover or I find a way to return or doing teshuva, which is return. So this is a sign of our enduring commitment to God and the deepest measure of the relationship component number 3 is their recognition that despite what we may or may not do and the fact the final in the final you know when when all else fails the fact is that our soul is a part of god and here we have text 10 Oh, do we, where are we at? I think we're, okay. Yeah, no, Jerry, I
4: believe. Okay, sorry, I had to find the mute button.
3: Okay, (laughs) no
4: problem. There are multiple levels of the Jews' bond with God. The bond forged by performing God's mitzvot, obeying all of God's precepts. A bond between the Jew and God that runs deeper than performance of the mitzvot. This inner bond is demonstrated by the fact that when one has transgressed God's command, it troubles him, prompting him to do teshuva. Inasmuch as teshuva comes from a deeper place than the connection forged by mitzvot, teshuva can remove the stain of sin that has weakened the manifest connection. Nevertheless, this deeper connection is also limited, defined by teshuva. Number three, the inherent bond between the soul's core and God's core. The bond, This bond is entirely unlimited and undefined and is too deep to be expressed by any kind of action, not even the act of Teshuva. This bond cannot be achieved by any set of actions or regimen of this divine service, because any human action, lofty as it may be, is ultimately finite. Rather, this bond exists naturally in every Jew in the core of the soul, which is truly a part of God on high, even now, when it resides in the body. The soul is enmeshed and glued to you, and one with your oneness. Okay, so
1: let's try to apply these uh, three components again to the holidays that we've that have passed. Uh, we'll do it to Rosh Hashanah, to Yom Kippur, and to Sukkot. So, in Rosh Hashanah,
3: we have Um, the mitzvah of
1: Rosh Hashanah is to hear the sound of the shofar the ram's horn God commanded us to do it and we do it that's the first component the gift of love there Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the ten days of teshuvah. In other words, it's the beginning of the process in which we reaffirm our commitment to God, despite whatever spiritual setbacks we've had in the past year. During uh, Rosh Hashanah and and then culminating with Yom Kippur, we talk about all the sins that we've done. Uh, We're supposed to ask forgiveness of sins of those between us and our fellow human. And uh, in our prayers, we ask God for forgiveness of any of the sins that we've committed between ourselves and God. Okay, so that's component number two. Component number three. Okay, so at at its core behind this, element of teshuva or return, Rosh Hashanah is uh, when we crown God as the king. We recognize the fact that the world was created, the fact that we were created to inhabit the world all for the purpose of serving God. In other words, it's when we recognize our core identity, as it says on the slide, that we are a part of God and that we're partners in uh, lifting up this world to be a place that God could dwell. Okay, so that's Rosh Hashanah. Let's apply these three components to Yom Kippur. Okay, so Yom Kippur, okay, as we say, okay, so number one, fasting is the mitzvah. We're supposed to afflict ourselves, and fasting is one of the ways we uh, afflict ourselves in the holiday, holy day. Um, again, there's a commandment, we do it. Demonstrates our love for God because we'll obey His commandment. Yom Kippur is the culmination of these ten days, and we've, you know, admitted all our sins and asked for forgiveness. We basically try to erase the past, and we return to God. Uh, and demonstrating their commitment to Him remains strong. And third
3: component, we know that
1: something deeper is taking place during Yom Kippur, according to Chasidus. It's the day in which the core of our souls Is revealed. And as it says on the slide, our pure soul is a part of God. We allow that pure soul to come out and be a part of God. And that's the core of our being. We're not a uh, A computer scientist or a lawyer or an accountant or even an orthodox conservative or reformed Jew, we're actually a part of God.
3: All right, so we've
1: got those components, compared them, uh, apply them to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Now let's go to Sukkot. So, in Sukkot, we rejoice with good food, nice clothes, jewelry, you know, with you know, wine, meat. You yeah, know, we're enjoying our holiday with God. It's shows the bond that we have with God. Okay, component 1 there. Component 2 is the commitment or the Teshuva. Um, we've undergone a roller coaster here. We had went through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. We we finished 10 days of Teshuva. <laughs> We pleaded our case before God, and we're begging him to grant us a good year. There's a midrash that tells us that when the Jews hold their lulav and the etrogs uh, in their hands in Sukkot, they're like people emerging victorious from battle. They're holding the symbol of victory in their hands. So the, this means that the love is a symbol of our commitment to God and the fact that our relationship endures despite all our mistakes. And um, let's see. So we're up to. I'll read. Yeah. You? Okay.
2: Yeah. One. I... To what can this be compared? To two men who went out before the king for judgment and nobody knew who won the case. The king said, Whoever walks out holding a javelin, know that he is the winner. Similarly, the Jewish people are judged on Yom Kippur and nobody knows who won the case. God says, Take your Lulavim in your hands so everyone will know you are notorious in judgment. Okay, okay.
1: The deepest element of our bond with God is represented by the sukkah. We can understand this better by understanding, uh, appreciate it better by understanding how this, how the mitzvah is supposed to be observed. And that's in the next one. Which I'll do. Just to... The verse states, for a seven-day period, you shall live in booths. The rabbis taught that one should live in the sukkah the same way he lives in this house all year long. The Torah obligates us to leave our homes and live here in the sukkah. Thus the rabbi said for all seven days one makes the home one's secondary residence and the sukkah one's primary residence. How? One who has nice bedding and nice utensils should bring them to the sukkah. Likewise, all... The drinkware one needs should be with him in the sukkah, just as they are with him in his house all year. I have a question about this, Rabbi. You know, uh, I know Habad doesn't tend to uh, sleep in the sukkah, but you know, here he's talking about bringing his bedding into the
3: sukkah. And your question for me
1: is? Uh, well, why would Rabbi Shneur Zalman talk about bringing bedding in and not implying that. sleeping in the sukkah versus the
5: Chabad custom? So there's, the, there, there's Shulchan Arach,
1: mm-hmm.
5: and in Shulchan Arach it says you should sleep in the sukkah. It, the Alter Rabbi slept in the sukkah, okay, and so did his chesidim. The, in the times of the Mitlerva, the Mitluva said that he didn't feel um, he, he felt that the the energy of the sukka was so powerful that he couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, so if one does sleep, just like when one eats, they have to do it in the best possible manner. Um, the fact that it's not that we don't sleep, it's that we can't sleep. And the rabbi himself, um, it seems like, never went to sleep on sofas. Yeah, so he goodness. would doze off, but he wouldn't go to sleep so as to sort of balance this. While uh, I can't say the same about myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but yeah, no, it was, uh, just
1: notice that, down. yeah. Yeah, yeah mo- uh, and most, most commandments, you know, Well, like the the, say, taking the four kinds, four species consists of one specific action. You take those four things and you wave it in all directions. Rosh Hashanah, you take the chauffeur and you blow it. How do you use a sukkah? It's not by doing anything out of the ordinary with it. You just do whatever you would normally
3: do in your house. But when you do it in the sukkah, it becomes a mitzvah.
1: And another interesting tidbit is that the mitzvah sukkah applies for the entire duration of the holiday. Uh, It isn't like the four kinds, which in the Bible in the Torah only applies on the first day, uh, the rabbis issued the the decree that you would, uh, waive the the, the lulah of um, all the days of the holiday, except if the day is a is a Sabbath. Sukkah is unique because unlike other mitzvahs, uh, it isn't limited to a specific part of the body. Hmm. You know, uh, that's another thing. So like gi- matzah with your mouth. You use your hand to light the Shabbos candles. Um, Purim, you would read the uh, the Book of Esther, the Megillah, uh, with your mouth, I guess. Yeah, but the mitzvahs of Sukkah is performed when the entire person enters it. So Sukkah is unique. It's 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 a commandment which is not just about doing some specific behavior for God but it's more and I guess that gets to some of this this idea that there's this energy in the sukkah that didn't allow the chazidim to to sleep Um, you know this is well, God, godly energy, and and the sukkah is about God being part of my very identity on Sukkot. Anything I do becomes a mitzvah if I do it in the sukkah. And there's no part of the holiday of Sukkot where the sukkah is not a mitzvah. In the sukkah, there's no part of me that's not fulfilling that mitzvah, not fulfilling that commandment. So this is really reflecting the deepest part of our connection with God. And whatever I may do, I can't escape that reality of being a part of God. And the sukkah just uh, uh, epitomizes it. And let's see. Okay, so yeah, I'll just I'll just do it. You yeah, know, it's getting late. The mitzvah of sukkah lasts all seven days of Sukkot. It's observed by living in the sukkah like a one lives at home, eating, drinking, sleeping, relaxing. And yeah, see that the Rebbe says sleeping here too, uh, and living in the sukkah for seven days, day and night. By contrast, the mitzvah of lulav biblically only applies on the first day. And it is observed by using it just once that day. A person typically feels a sense of ownership over their property. I may lend something to you, but I know it's still mine, you know. <laughs> the sukkah is a place where your core identity as a part of God is revealed. That's why there's no part of me that's not engaged in that
3: commandment of dwelling in the sukkah.
1: Just like my identity is that I'm a part of God, your identity, you know, and the other Jew, is
3: that you're a part of God too. So ultimately, we're all really one. So when I sit in the sukkah,
1: and we know we're all one, yeah, I can't say that that sukkah is mine any more than it is yours, because we're one and the same. We're all that piece of God. But it's important that, you know, for the sukkah to belong to the person sitting in it, just like it's important for that lulav to be belong to that person using it. The difference is that in the sukkah, I don't have to confer any ownership on you. We, we don't have to, I don't have to gift it to you because we're all one. We all share in that ownership automatically. And that's the uh, what the Rebbe explains is, is the deeper meaning of the 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 statement in the Talmud that all the Jewish people are fit to reside in one sukkah.
2: You want to do this one? Sure. Just a... what do you... Yeah. Inasmuch as sukkah is the manifestation of God's coronation during which the Jewish people are united with God, it is understood that no division is possible between one Jew and another. In other words, the fact that all the Jewish people are fit to reside in one sukkah means that because the sukkah is so great, the Jews are inherently united. This is not the kind of unity with the two bond together as one, but the kind of unity of something that was always one to begin with one being.
1: OK. The only thing that doesn't work is a stone slip Someone who enters another circle without permission
3: shows that
1: he's taken himself out of this shared sense of common identity and,
3: you know, being part of the whole.
1: Since he breaks the unity, he can't be doing the mitzvah of dwelling in the
3: sukkah properly.
1: So we were trying to find out how we bequeath the energy heritage, rather, you know, what can we do, you know, uh, to nurture that sense of identity and pass it on to
3: those who come after us. You know, these
1: festivals that we're, we, we've had during the high holidays and now during Sukkot shows that we have those three components. We must invest in the behaviors and gifts that nurtured our relationship with God, we must remain committed to that relationship with God so that even though we have setbacks, you know, the relationship's not derailed, and we must finally be keenly aware that Judaism is the core of who we are. So let's get back to Pierre and... uh, Diana. So Pierre isn't uh, sure what kind of Jewish identity he's going to try and impress upon his son. We can give him an answer. You know, the first is to perform the mitzvahs. You know, the actions which express our relationship with God. And as for the commitment part, we know that whatever happens, we can always come back. We could do this teshuva, return, uh, be repenting of the acts that we didn't do or did wrong and promise not to do it again. Commit to not doing it again. Um,
3: And then finally,
1: again, Judaism is who I am. It's that's you know, that can't change. So you can always, you can, you know, by demonstrating, by doing the mitzvahs, by being repentant and trying to start over again, um, that shows your your commitment to God. For Diana, You know, she feels that, you know, she left the fold 30 years ago. How can she go back? You just have to remind her that nothing you might have done or not done can take your connection to Judaism away from you. Once a Jew, always a Jew. Because at the core,
3: Judaism is who you are.
0: Okay, I think, yeah, that's about it. This podcast is produced by Harfer Chabad and the Klein Jewish Academy. To learn more, visit harferchabad.org forward slash podcast.